There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, through January, we had the annual scenes of and stories about overcrowding in the state's emergency departments. Some of it was, as usual, shocking, particularly the plight of elderly people being subjected to hours and even days lying on trolleys at waiting admission to hospitals. In recent weeks, there was a protest in Limerick where the problem is particularly acute, which attracted 11,000 people or so onto the streets. The Midwest Hospital Action Campaign wants three regional emergency departments reopened because University Hospital Limerick appears to be unable to cope with the numbers. Elsewhere, there's been a long-running campaign to prevent the downgrading of Navin Emergency Department, where the clinical director of that hospital says services are simply unsafe. Everybody agrees that this is completely unacceptable in what is a fully developed and even wealthy country, But then the crisis eases, the overcrowding thins out somewhat, not completely, never completely, and the media caravan and the public anger moves on. But what is the real cost of overcrowding in emergency departments and what can be done to alleviate it? Fergal Hickey is a long-time consultant in emergency medicine who has served as president and spokesperson for the Irish Association of Emergency Medicine. He has recently retired from his post in Sligo. He has also been a keen observer and commentator on the politics of health and I think most people are agreed that much of the problems we are experiencing are attributable to the politics of health. Fergal, you're very welcome. Thank you, Mick. Now, Fergal, before we get to the solutions, could we just look at the cost and specifically, I mean, the cost in lives. As far back as 2006 in the Australian Medical Journal and as recently as a HICWA report last December, there's incontrovertible evidence that this overcrowding in EDs is costing lives. Absolutely. But interestingly, it was a month after Mary Harney declared the problem to be a national emergency. And... You know, if you go back 20 years, we had occasional difficulties during the winter. But now this is a 12-month-of-the-year problem where we set records month on month. Now, it has often been characterized as an affront to patients' privacy or dignity or or other, uh, shall we say, human rights. But the reality is it is killing people. So we've known that there are two Australian studies that were published in April of 2006 What they showed is that if you attend an emergency department which is crowded, then your mortality goes up. Now, they were able to do a very comprehensive study which was not able to be contradicted by anybody. But if you extrapolate it to the Irish population that would then have existed of 4.5 million, it meant that based on the Australian studies, we were losing approximately 350 patients per year as a direct result of emergency department crowding. These are patients who wouldn't otherwise have died. More recently, in in 2022, an enormous study from NHS England was published. This study, 26.75 million patients 
representing almost 7.5 million admissions. And because some patients were admitted more than once, that was 5,249,891 individual patients. And what they looked at was the delay to admission and the implications for that for mortality. So basically, if you wait for five hours from the time a decision to admit is made to the time you finally end up in a hospital bed, you have an excess death rate of 1 in 81. So one extra person will die who wouldn't otherwise have died. If that gets to eight hours, the figure doubles, and there is an increase then, a stepwise increase. Interestingly, they didn't look at waits for 18 hours, 24 hours, 36 hours, because they didn't occur in the UK system, even though the HICWA report that you mentioned, Mick, uh, that was published before Christmas, bemoaned the fact that people were regularly waiting 24, 36, 48 hours for hospital admission. So you can see the mortality effect is multiply magnified. So this is killing people. And there are, you know, parents, generation typically, and they're, they're older people, often with medical conditions, but there's somebody's relations, relations, and we have effectively failed them, or at least our political system has failed them. And just to put that in a small bit of context, Fergal, the studies you revert, as you said, 2006 in Australia, and as you point out, that an, an awful lot of those who die are elderly and possibly of other conditions. Notwithstanding that, you're saying their earlier death is directly attributable to that weight in the emergency department? Undoubtedly. So there's no argument about this. And I think now we're starting to see politicians accepting this, even though what they haven't accepted is the implications that once you accept it, you need to do something about it, which of course hasn't happened. But this is a direct result. So these were control studies. So they were able to show the excess death rates. So these are people who wouldn't otherwise have died. And I think that's the important thing. Now, they don't attain the publicity that maybe uh, others will attain. You'll, you'll, you'll be aware that there was a very unfortunate case in Limerick um, in, in recent months where a 16-year-old girl died uh, while having a prolonged wait on a trolley. The only reason that this gained popularity or gained media traction was she was 16. There are people all the time dying in their 70s and 80s who won't be as newsworthy, but they're still dying nonetheless. And and these are deaths which are completely preventable. Yeah, and as you say, like, for example, I'm just thinking, you mentioned the figure of 350 extrapolating. That's more than die on the roads of the state in a whole year. And is it just because, I suppose, it's hidden that it doesn't have the same impact? Sorry, when I say hidden, I mean, quite obviously it's not. But I'm just saying in terms of how it is perceived publicly, that volume of deaths? I think partly people have looked the other way. Uh, I mean, it's not that people don't know about this. I mean, we've been making the case since 2006, since this evidence came into the public domain. So it's not that people don't know. But I suppose what you're not getting is a dramatic effect. I mean, so so the extrapolation from a population of 4.5 million, we need to bear in mind the population is now 5.5 million. So the figure is somewhere now closer to 500. But that is the equivalent of two and a half uh, Aer Lingus or Ryanair planes falling out of the sky in a given year. And yet they'll be held to pay because of the suddenness of it, the drama associated with it. But because this is a drip, 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 drip effect, it doesn't gain the same traction. It doesn't appear in the coroner's courts in the way that it might. 
and it it doesn't really attract public attention. And as you quite rightly point out, the media are only really interested in this in January. I mean, I've been making the point for any, any time I'm asked about this, that we keep setting records during the summer. We set records in the autumn. We set records in the spring. So, so when this problem started, it was undoubtedly a winter-only problem. But now it is 12 months of the year. And the other implication of this is that there has been mass cancellation of elective surgery because the system simply doesn't have enough beds to be able to do both elective activity and emergency activity simultaneously. Obviously, emergency activity keeps on coming. The elective activity is something that can, the tap can be turned off, even though that's not fair on patients. And that too is implications for emergency department crowding. Yeah, it is shocking when you put it in context and we, we could debate all day as to why it does not receive the attention it should. But moving on to solutions, quite obviously, uh, the first issue that always arises here is investment. And also, and this applies both to the political system and the large sections of, of the public in general, the response very often comes back as to the amount of money we're spending on health. But when you break it down, as I understand it, Fergal, we have very large current spending and nowhere near the amount of capital spending translated presumably into beds that we should have. And that's in a, in a nutshell. I mean, our capital expenditure is poor, therefore we have very, very poor infrastructure. So, you know, this was exposed badly when COVID hit because we didn't have the isolation facilities. So if you take it in an average emergency department, you're lucky if you've, you know, one, two or three side rooms, but everybody else is separated simply by a curtain. And in many cases, people are on corridors or in shared spaces where they're literally nose to tail. So there is, it isn't possible to... Uh, separate people from an infection control point of view. And that effect is is replicated on the wards. We still have Nightingale wards, you know, large wards with the corridor down the middle of them with patients on either side. We still have a lot of six-bedded wards or, or, or certainly the, you know, what will be the norm elsewhere of single occupancy wards is not the normal in Ireland because we haven't put the money into it. And we certainly haven't put the money into beds. So, as, you know, we have fewer beds now than we had 20 years ago. I mean, that's another shocking statistic. But the minister, the current minister, uh, Stephen Donnelly, will say that he has pushed somewhere between 950 and 1,000 extra beds into the system. Now, some of these are in acute hospitals. Some of them are in community facilities. Some of them, the HSE, concede that they haven't actually managed to deliver. Some of them, the HSE, concede that they haven't managed to actually staff. But even allowing for that, and that's been the first increase in bed capacity for for donkey's years, the best that brings us is to somewhere like 2.9 acute hospital beds per thousand of the population, when the OECD average is 4.3. And interestingly, the one thing that unites the experience in the UK and the experience in Ireland is both of us are at the extreme lower end of the number of acute hospital beds per thousand of the population. Is any wonder both systems are on their knees? Okay, so uh, quite obviously there's underspending in terms of beds. Now, the, the big question, of course, is why? And uh, you know, the, the, you, you, you're going to get a, you, you can. There can be a glib answer to that, but I mean, it has to be, in my opinion, more complex than simply the the 
the government, the transient government or, or the permanent government um, don't believe in investing in it. I mean, for example, some of the responses you get is that the current spending is so much greater than it should be. There's reluctance to put money into the capital spending. I mean, is there something in that? Well, actually, I mean, paradoxically, if you provide bad quality care, you end up spending more money. So, for example, if a person comes to an emergency department with a heart attack, and sometimes that can be difficult to diagnose, sometimes it can be a delayed diagnosis, but if they're overlooked because the place is busy and crowded and they're finally got to some hours later, then their likelihood of having a good outcome is less. But they're probably not going to die from it, or to die as a direct result from it, but what they will have is a much longer hospital stay, they'll have much greater complications, they are much more likely to require medication for the rest of their lives. They're more likely to have intermittent crises, which require them to come into hospital periodically. All of that adds to the current spend for the want of capital expenditure. And we see that across the board. Um, you know, we have had massive outbreaks of COVID. We've had massive outbreaks of flu. Uh, we have outbreaks periodically of other infectious diseases uh, in our hospitals, because we don't have the necessary infrastructure, we can't separate patients one from another. So therefore, we end up giving patients complications which are avoidable, and we end up therefore paying more because they have longer lengths of stay. A very simple um, point that's well worth making is that if you're over 75 and you are more than 12 hours on a trolley, now, we know that your mortality will go up for the reasons that we talked about earlier. But even if you survive that, your length of stay will increase. Your likelihood of complications increases. You are less likely to be able to return to the independent existence that you had when you came into hospital. So therefore, you have a greater likelihood of requiring long-term institutional care. That costs a fortune. And that's the reality is that we end up spending far more money in current expenditure simply because we haven't got our act together in terms of the capital infrastructure required for a modern health service, unlike many other countries. That makes perfect sense, Fergal. And then, but again, you'll have people coming back saying, yes, that accounts for a certain amount of, let's for argument's sake, call it excess current expenditure. But very often, and this is very often in the media, whether or not it's it's correctly portrayed or not, what also comes back is that because of uh, our management systems and various ways that things are done, that the spending in that respect is also greatly inflated. And I think that, I think there's a large element of truth about this. We have a lot of non-viable services. We have non-viable hospitals. We have fragmented services. We have services that have a fragmented governance. All of those will contribute to excess costs and, and poor delivery. I mean, that, that, that I think is a reality. I think also um, it's interesting that anytime there's a clamour for uh, an uplift in acute bed capacity, figures get leaked to suggest that the capital cost of a bed is €1 million. Euro. Now, first of all, I don't believe that that is true. But the only source that that could come from is a source that's actively trying to ensure that agreements don't take place to actually uh, create the necessary bed capacity. And remember, Mick, we've done this before. So um, some of your older listeners will remember the TB era. 
So we built big after the Second World War. We built places like Merlin Park in Galway. We built Sarsfield Court in Cork. We built Blanchardstown and Arkeen as four large regional sanatoria to deal with the scourge of TB. So we proved that we could do it. Now, the reality was that streptomycin, the drug, the anti-TB drug, dealt with a lot of the need for, for hospitalization. Uh, so a couple of those ended up being white elephants for a period of time. But that's not the situation we're in now, where we need the beds and we know we'll use the beds. And we'll, it'll, it'll be able to allow both emergency activity and elective activity to happen simultaneously. But it's not going to be achieved by two beds here and three beds there and maybe five beds somewhere else. Often not meeting the standards because they're seen as refurbishments. Right. No. That brings us to uh, ways in which things can be done better. And I recall, because I remember writing about it at the time, back, wasn't too long, I'd say, after the HSE was established around 04, 05, its first CEO, or it may not have been the first second, Brendan Drum, one of his big plans was the rationalisation of, as it was accident, and emergency departments around the country. That now is hidden for 20 years ago. And I distinctly remember the protests then. And what I remember in particular, Fergal, is in one protest, a government minister was joining those who were protesting that their uh, accident emergency would be taken away from their provincial town. That was 20 years ago. We see a very similar scenario today. I mentioned Navin. We see see in Limerick there there are um, are efforts to have the ones that were closed and the likes of Enna and Ennis and Nina reopened. And I can understand the rationalisation argument. We saw how apparently successful it is in relation to cancer care, without a doubt. But what you will get from people in those towns is that we don't believe it's going to be better and the evidence that will be put in front of you currently, for example, will be the scenario we have in Limerick. I think the evidence supports appropriate reconfiguration. The problem is it's been executed very badly and the Midwest is a good example of that. So as long ago as uh, 2008, uh, the Irish Association for Emergency Medicine produced a position paper which set out what needed to happen in advance of reconfiguration for it to be successful. In other words, that the hospitals that are losing services, those services need to be provided somewhere else and you need to support those hospitals to do that. Of course, that's not what has happened. So it didn't happen in the Northeast. It didn't happen in the Midwest. It didn't happen in the context of Roscommon. There were a lot of promises made which simply weren't delivered. And the promises are for two things. One is bed capacity, which we know Limerick was critically short of beds even before reconfiguration. It's just become even shorter of beds now. And the second thing is resource in the ambulance service for the necessary additional journeys and additional length of individual journeys. And that was done in all of those places on overtime. And of course, it became very apparent very quickly that this was unsustainable from a financial point of view and they were quietly dropped. But the reality is that what would have been required to make reconfiguration work simply wasn't delivered. People promised big and delivered small. And that is the risk in Navin as well. Now, the argument for opening or reopening closed emergency departments, I think it's very important that people understand what we're talking about. You cannot simply put a sign outside a building saying emergency department and it becomes an emergency department. 
You need a number of things. You need the expertise, both nursing and medical. And that means people who were trained as consultants in emergency medicine to lead that service and trainees in emergency medicine that are going to be the consultants of the future to staff it. You need appropriate nursing staffing, but you need the department to be supported by the hospital. And that means having acute surgery, acute medicine, critical care, diagnostics, laboratory services. And remember, the reason that Ennis lost its services was a HICWA report that said it was unsafe. And many of the hospitals, Navin, for example, doesn't have acute surgery. So Navin is, by definition, unsafe. So if you come in with bleeding, that you need a surgeon to stop the bleed, it cannot be done in Navin. So Navin, therefore, is unsafe. And the idea of reopening places that were deemed previously unsafe, when the reality is they're even less safe now, doesn't hold water. Now, that's not to say they don't need to solve the problem in Limerick. They clearly do. But the solution to Limerick's problem is essentially creating the necessary bed capacity. Now, it doesn't mean the Ennises and the Ninas don't serve a purpose. Of course they do. They will have acute medical units, which GPs are in a position to refer to. And they will also have injury units, which can deal with the majority of musculoskeletal injuries, particularly to the limbs. So it's not that these hospitals don't serve a purpose and won't serve a purpose. And perhaps the best example of that is Roscommon. Roscommon now employs more staff than it did when it had an emergency department. It is busier than ever, but it's just doing different work. So it's doing diagnostics, day surgery, and a whole host of things which can't be done in the big hospitals because they simply don't have the capacity. And that is the model we need to continue and not try and go backwards because by going backwards, we certainly will not go forwards and we'll certainly not make the situation safer. Yeah, there's two elements to, to that I just think are interesting. One, I still can't get my head around. As I said, this has been going on. You mentioned your association 2008. And I think it was even prior to that, there, there were efforts by Brendan Drum. And quite it makes perfect sense what you're saying, that first of all, you properly equip the larger hospitals to which the, the satellite um, EDs will feed into as per best practice I can't understand we're at this 20 years and still those large hospitals are not equipped in preparation for example the likes of Limerick or Galway prior when Roscommon went in there Draw had a prior to, to closing down Navin they are still not properly resourced ahead of closing down what are effectively satellite uh, EDs yeah, and, and that, that's the bit that's wrong. Uh, quite, quite simply, it needs to happen. It needs to happen in advance and it needs to happen transparently. I mean, the public need to be assured that they're not just going to end up on a trolley in a, in a hospital 20 or 30 kilometers away. That's the point. And there has been systematic failure to do this. And there's been a lot of promising. I mean, we're, as a country, we're great at promising the sun, moon and stars. Our problem is delivery. We plan, we report, we produce all kinds of documents which just become shelfware. We don't deliver and we haven't delivered on reconfiguration, although the theory is good. The experience for patients would be good if the necessary infrastructure was put in place. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. The other thing that arises there, Fergal, and just to make a comparison once again with um, cancer care, and we saw at cancer care the scenario, and personally, I think this had a big impact on it. Two individuals. One, Mary Harney was Minister for Health. And just dealing with Ms Harney in relation to this issue, she was coming towards the end of her political career. She was somebody who sought out the health portfolio because she passionately wanted to change it, etc. and that kind of thing. And this came along her big, her big uh, delivery, if you want to put it that way. So she was politically behind it. You also had in charge of it from the medical side, Tom Keane, a man who was brought in from Canada. He was effectively from outside the system. And he insisted on going through with it. And there was an issue that arose, and you, you'll probably be familiar with this in Sligo, and he insisted, no, we were going to stick with the same configuration, notwithstanding the opposition that was there, and Harney backed him at the time. Now, to me, in uh, what you might call a more regular political scenario, the visceral attachment that people would have to their local ED, notwithstanding the science that they're ultimately going to be far better off, um, it being a satellite to a larger hospital, that is an extremely difficult thing to get past politically. And I can't see the political will, even if you had the kind of of, uh, changes you say are necessary in the bigger hospitals ahead of any reconfiguration. That political issue remains extremely difficult. Yeah, so I mean, I think it's probably fair to say that health has been seriously damaged by essentially political cowardice over a long period of time, that even when people know it's the right thing to do, uh, they're not prepared to nail their colours to the mask. The one exception, actually, was Frank Fian, who was yeah. uh, TD for um, Roscommon. Uh, he received an awful lot of abuse. Uh, and and lots of moving consi- Yeah, and, ended, uh, and to be fair to Enda Kenny, Enda Kenny appointed him to the, to the Shannon, which I think at the time was seen as a recognition that he had put his neck on the political block. But to be fair to him, and I mean, I've had this discussion with him more than once since, because obviously not alone do the patients who would have gone to Roscommon go to Galway and Ballinasloe, they come to Sligo and they come to Castlevar as well. Um, But he recognised that it was the right thing to do. And he said he was prepared to pay the price. And as I said, Roscommon is now busier than ever. He employs more people. And I think that is always one of the issues for politicians is that they feel 
that losing a service means you lose jobs. And as as you're well aware, Mick, a a hospital might might well be the biggest employer in a particular town. So that becomes important. The reality is Roscommon now employs more people, it's busier than ever, and it provides a good service. So, you know, it is possible to be politically brave and do the right thing, but I haven't seen much of it in my career. And what about then, Fergal, the other issue that always arises when we come to any aspect of health services is that there are so many vested interests, and I don't mean vested in a pejorative sense, but just people who, who, who have a skin in the game, so to speak. There are so many interests that discommoding those interests, again, is a major political issue. And, you know, there's no getting away from it. One of the interests is consultants as well. And so do consultants have a role to play in adapting the way they work in order to, to, to get to a better place? Well, interestingly, a lot of the leadership, and, and Brendan Drum certainly acknowledged this at the time, a lot of the leadership around reconfiguration in the Midwest came from Colin O'Donnell, who was then a consultant in emergency medicine in Limerick. He's now the medical director of the National Ambulance Service. So it is possible for consultants to lead from the front. And we saw that in Roscommon as well, that the surgeons and physicians in Roscommon pub- accepted at public meetings that Roscommon would be safer without an emergency department. So you do see um, people step up, stepping up to the plate. Yes, there's vested interest in everything. And I suppose for everybody, uh, change is always a challenge. Um, I don't think consultants are particularly uh, more, more opposed than any other group. Uh, interestingly enough, the experience of reconfiguration has been that general practitioners oppose it vehemently because what they want is the option of being able to send somebody, whoever it is, with whatever problem, to the local emergency department, even if that's not the right place for their particular problem. But they want the outlet, if you like. Uh, so they have opposed vehemently reconfiguration anywhere that, that it has been proposed. So I think across the board, change is always a challenge for people. But, it, but you know, dinosaurs died out because they didn't adapt. Yeah, exactly. And the, the the other thing that arises, and, and it arose again this January, was the whole idea of hospitals operating, not in the ED department, obviously, and not nursing, for instance, but in a lot of aspects, a five-day model rather than 24-7, seven days a week. Again, is that something that should be brought in permanently and would you envisage a lot of resistance to it? Well, interestingly, there was a lot of negative feedback, certainly within the medical community, to the minister's suggestion that this was needed as if it wasn't already happening. I mean, that's the irony of it. I was a consultant in Sligo for 27 years, and I spent a lot of my weekends and nights in the hospital, as was appropriate given the clinical circumstances that pertained. And I would have met many of my colleagues there over individual patients. So I'd have met my radiologist colleagues, my critical care colleagues, I would have met surgeons and physicians. So the inference was that this wasn't already being provided. But of course, what they have done historically is staff the hospitals on the basis that the service will be provided on five days. And then for the rest of the time, it'll be provided on an on-call basis. So if you want to change that, and, and I don't think anyone has any difficulty with the principle, of it being changed, then you need to ramp up the amount of staffing necessary to do it. So, for example, you know, in a, a simple analogy, 
for one nurse to provide a service over 24 hours for 365 days of the year requires five points something whole time equivalents. That's just an example. So you're talking about an increase in staffing necessary to be able to provide the service consistently over the seven days, which is not the way the healthcare system has ever been set up and it's not the way it's ever been funded. So what we have is essentially a graft on, if you like, to a five-day office hour service. Now, for emergency departments, that's a real challenge because some of the services that we depend on are less available out of hours and less available at weekends. And God help you if Christmas falls, Christmas and New Year fall in a particular way, you can have four or five days in a row, you know, between weekends and bank holidays where the service is, is run on a skeletal basis. I don't think anyone has any difficulty with the idea of changing that, but it does require significant investment in staffing. And remember, I mean, I spent the first nine years of my career in Sligo as the singleton consultant in emergency medicine. I was one of one. So I was on call every night unless I took leave. It took nine years for a second colleague. It took six years for a third colleague, five years for a fourth colleague. It's a very slow incremental process. Absolutely. So, and, and what arose there in January, and I heard a number of consultants coming on and talking about being on call at weekends already and, and coming in where, where, where necessary. But I'm just wondering, do you believe if there was a rota system and the investment was available for it, where effectively Saturday and Sunday are normal days and all services, and naturally the supporting services would have to be there as well, if that was all available, would it make a noticeable improvement in the overall situation? There's no doubt it would, it would improve things, provided it was met in parallel by the same facilities being available in the community. So one of the things you would also have heard people saying was, look, you know, I'm trying to discharge somebody on a Saturday to the community, but the community has basically gone away for the weekend and won't be back until Monday. Um, so, you know, that would have to be fixed in parallel. But But yes... Subject to that being fixed, it would make the situation better. But remember, when we're talking about people on trolleys, we're essentially talking about people who we deem worthy of hospital admission. They're sick enough to require hospital admission. Now, it is true that a certain number of beds are occupied by people who could have been discharged earlier if the services in the community, and that might be something as simple as home help. I mean, it is ironic that home help, which is cheap, relative to the cost of somebody being in the hospital is often a rate-limiting step. And it's becoming increasingly difficult to recruit home helps because they're not well paid. They're expected to use their own transport and so on. So we have set things up. Those that have set things up have set things up in a way that work against us. You've long experienced, as I said, Fergal, I think it was 1995 you started in Sligo. Yeah. Um, yeah. Have you over the years and particularly in recent years have you seen anything that could be described as incremental change or and do you see any have you any hope out there in terms of in the current trajectory things are going to get any way better in that respect I think I think Slaughter Care if delivered will be helpful to the health service at large it probably won't achieve all that was promised for it because they certainly were over ambitious in a lot of what they claimed it would provide and it certainly won't solve the bed capacity problem. I think what I've certainly seen is the standard of training has improved for doctors in Ireland. 
uh, even though there's no doubt that uh, the current pressures on individuals and the pressures on tight rotas is a challenge. But, I mean, when I started in 1995, uh, I had to train in the UK. So I qualified in UCD, did did a few years in Ireland. That At that point, there was medical unemployment, which is hard to imagine. I went to the UK because I wanted to pursue a career in what became emergency medicine, was then called excellence in emergency medicine, because you couldn't do it in Ireland. Now we can do it in Ireland, and we're training significant numbers. The problem, of course, is that the system is now so awful that people are voting with their feet and going to Australia. So we have a major problem with younger doctors emigrating with the view of not coming back as opposed to going away for a few years with the view to coming back. We have younger nurses who are leaving the system in large numbers, and we have older nurses and and consultants who are within a few years of the nominal retirement deciding to opt out on the basis they can't keep doing this any longer. And that's in spite of the fact that we're training more people, we have better training. So we need to fix the very thing that we started talking about to encourage people to want to work in the Irish system. It's much easier to go to Australia, albeit it's the other side of the world, and that causes challenges if your parents are elderly or infirm. But it is easier and better to do that for a lot of people who get better job satisfaction from doing it, work in better resourced, better staffed, more modern departments that function as intended and don't have the same sort of political chicanery that, that you and I talked about earlier going on. So, I mean, I think there are, there, there, are, there are grounds for some optimism, but the optimism is tempered by the fact that if you don't fix this problem, it will have got past, if it hasn't already got past, the point of no return. Finally, is there another issue as well, Fergal, and that is the public's attitudes? Because uh, frequently we'll see opinion polls, and you're, you're very much clued into the politics, so frequently we see opinion polls, frequently in the media, whenever we talk about political issues today, we're talk housing and health, housing and health, housing and health. Now, personally, I believe housing is something that impacts on people at general elections, in particularly in recent years, and, and probably more so on the next election than ever before. However, it would seem that despite people saying health and the state of the health service being a major concern, it does not seem to impact on election day. I mean, you will have at the next election, as you had at every other election, you will have promises of doing things. You will have possibly a new Minister for Health coming in full of vim, vigour and big ideas and yet is ground down by the system to the largest extent because the political capital that has to be expended in fixing things simply isn't there and presumably an element that is on the basis that they don't believe there'd be political reward for it. I think that's unfortunately true. It was interesting to see the protests recently. You mentioned the one in Limerick with 11,000, but there was protests in various places around the country now, and some places I was surprised the protests weren't bigger. But this is perhaps the first time the public have started to say, hang on a minute, this isn't good enough. This is not acceptable in a first world country. I mean, if this was Yemen, you'd say, fair enough. And sometimes the commentary from our political leaders and indeed leaders in the HSE suggest that they're offering a commentary on another country rather than it being one that they've, they've actually responsibility for. And some of their advice is truly appalling. I mean, the recent advice about avoiding emergency departments and, and, and the suggestions offered with people with potential respiratory conditions was a good example of something which was more than just counterproductive. But 
I, I think the public need to start leaning on their politicians and saying more and more, this is not good enough. This is not acceptable. We shouldn't have to take this risk. I mean, the mortality figures that we talked about are truly shocking. And I, I expect at some stage, I genuinely expect to see, hopefully in my lifetime, but, but at some point, is a public inquiry or tribunal of inquiry into how and why we've known this for so long and this was allowed to happen without any action to deal with it. Now, one of the issues, obviously, is the political cycle is one general election cycle. And therefore, when you make decisions about capital expenditure and health, the process is so belaboured. There are so many stages. I mean, it is Byzantine and deliberately Byzantine and, you know, would frustrate just about anybody involved. But that is such that it is unlikely to be delivered in the same political cycle as, as somebody's decision to implement it. We need to accelerate that. I mean, why should it take so long? I mean, we're talking about, you know, modular housing that's going to be thrown up in a matter of 12 or 14 weeks at the moment. I mean, why can't health be treated in the same way? I mean, we have a need. We have a need now. We had it last year. We had it the previous year. We've had it, you know, for, for a decade. Why hasn't this been treated in the same way? And your your point about housing is important because at the moment we're seeing people in emergency departments who are there by virtue of having no housing or they have no heat or they're not in a position to be sent home because they're going home to a place with no heat because they have fuel poverty. So all of these things uh, all intermesh. But unless we start solving the problem and notwithstanding that it's difficult from a political perspective, but we did in the 1950s, we're capable of doing it again, if people would as a group. I mean, Sloan to Care was an Oireachtas consensus. So there was no disputing what needed to be done and, and everybody's agreed. Now, clearly the implementation is a challenge and Tom Keane that you mentioned earlier Tom Keane obviously got frustrated, as did um, Laura McGahey. But she decided, um, and Tom Keane decided, that they couldn't get what needed to be done done in a timely fashion, and they were frustrated. So it is possible for the Oireachtas to reach consensus. We have the opposition saying we need more beds. We even have the government. We even have government parties saying we need more beds. It's where they weren't in government. The way they're commenting on us as if it's in Azerbaijan or somewhere. We need to do something and we need to do something now because if we don't, we will continue to lose people at the rate that you and I have talked about earlier. And, you know, I don't want my mother, who's 92, to be one of those. I don't think anyone would, would want any of our senior citizens or our own relatives or even just, you know, fellow citizens to be in that situation again. Absolutely. And it just strikes me when you're saying that, Fergal, I... I the, the, and I mentioned road deaths before and it's interesting for decades we tolerated some shocking statistics in terms of road deaths until between a few things there was media campaigns and there was various other things that came around that uh, no this couldn't be tolerated anymore and there was some major reforms took place at the time including uh, to a large extent the whole issue around drink driving and how vested yeah. interests were dealt with in that and as you say the nature of the issue here is that these deaths, so many of them, they're not hidden as such, but in terms of the public yeah. consciousness, they are. Yeah, now they will often be referred to in the uniquely Irish way of a tragic accident, even though usually somebody's culpable. 
Um, but we have a we have a capacity to describe things in those terms because it makes it a bit more comfortable for society. But I think what's also key is the Road Safety Authority has a strategy for zero deaths. There's no way the Road Safety Authority will ever come out and say, okay, we're prepared to accept 100 deaths on the roads because it's less than 120. Yes, we have had during the various winter initiatives, we've often accepted, or we, when, but we, I mean, the HSE has often accepted having 350 people on trolleys as if this is acceptable. The only acceptable figure is zero. I can remember, in fact, when you go back to 2006, 2000, the winter of 2006, 2007, believe it or not, was the first winter initiative. And every winter since then, we've had a winter initiative, winter plan, it gets called different things, but none of them have ever dealt with the underlying issue. This year is the first one that beds have actually been included in the description, although it's not the majority of the description. There's an awful lot of other deck chair moving around on the tight sinking Titanic about it. But this is the first year that beds have actually been recognized that they need to, to need to add beds to the system. And yet that's been going on since 2006 slash 2007. So that gives you some indication how long it's taken us to get to this point. It was the same with road debts. I mean, we had ridiculous, I mean, enforcement, non-enforcement, we, well, we laws which were designed to be uh, like a colander and many, many a solicitor made their career out of finding various loopholes in the drink driving legislation in particular. We would, as an association, would have strongly supported the attempts to to uh, reduce the, the, the drink driving alcohol limit and other initiatives because we were seeing the impact of this and we were seeing both people wiped out inappropriately or other people who were innocent parties who were wiped out by those who, who, who should have and could have known better and could have avoided being in this situation. So, yeah, things happen slowly in Ireland, but sometimes they finally happen. I mean, we had a successful smoking ban. Nobody thought that that would work. You know, there was a general view, oh, this is just, you know, just one, one more initiative, and it worked. So I think if if finally the politicians as a group, as opposed to just fighting with one another in the traditional way, said, okay, guys, we need to solve this problem for the sake of all our constituents, all our citizens, all the excess visitors to the country. I mean, we've had, in addition to the population from, from the, going up from 4.5 to 5.5 million since those debt statistics were were calculated, We've also now have 72,000 Ukrainians in the country. Now, that's not of itself a bad thing, and I'm not criticizing that, but they bring with them medical problems and complex medical problems that the system is ill-prepared to deal with. And yes, we talk about it as if it'll all be hunky-dory, when in fact they're, they're proving a major challenge to the healthcare system in the same way that they're proving a major challenge to the housing system. Absolutely. And as you say, let's hope things are going to change at some stage soon and it won't happen by osmosis. There will have to be various pressures and I think we all have a role to play in that respect. Fergal Hickey, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. I'd also like to thank our engineer JJ Vernon. As always, thank you folks for listening. Stay by the wall and we'll be back and talk to you soon. On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. 
Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are like interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.